Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Marshall podcast. As you may have deduced, this is not Josh Marshall, but Kate Riga, reporter at TPM and co-host of the show. Josh is out today for some personal matters, but never fear, we were able to find another Josh to graciously step in at the last minute. Josh Kavinsky, TPM investigative reporter, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Kate. We're going to talk about a lot of different topics today, but they all share a common theme, which is the struggle between democracy and authoritarianism. You know, we're seeing it play out in Ukrainian cities marred by bloodshed and destruction and our Supreme Court flirting with a legal theory that existentially threatens free elections and with a primary in Texas hallmarked by chaos intentionally unleashed by Republican lawmakers seeking to make voting harder. So let's get into it. But first, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get a discount with code TPM at Grady'sColdBrew.com. Okay, Josh, I want to start with Ukraine and Russia. Let's talk big picture, and then we can get into some recent stories about the conflict at home and abroad. So to start, can you give our listeners a sense of the state of the invasion? Many people have probably seen some pretty devastating images out of an attacked maternity hospital recently, especially. Sure. So I think that, let me think of where to start. We're two weeks in and Russia has not managed to take any kind of huge Ukrainian city that it's besieged. Um, there's only one large city they've taken in the south, the city of Kherson. It's economically an important city. It's not the most important city, but it is a big kind of population center. Apart from that, they've laid siege to Mariupol um, in the east, very close to where they were, the Ukrainians were already fighting Russian proxies for the past eight years. They've laid siege to Kharkiv um, in the north, the east, and then they've laid siege to Kiev in the north. What I think we've seen over the past few days is the Russian momentum slowing quite a lot. Um, people who know this stuff way better than I do, who follow um, kind of military movements and have background in this, are all kind of saying, like, the Russians have slowed down. They aren't making any serious advances at the moment. And the question there, I think, is are they doing that to regroup and change their strategy, or is, are they, have they actually been fought to a halt? Um, it's not clear. And I think the situation is probably different in different locations. You know, there are separate questions about supply chain issues the Russians have been having, about the readiness of their own troops to fight, um, you know, that I think are all relevant here. But I think from a kind of like 40,000 you know, feet in the sky view, like level, um, the, the story is that the Russian advance has halted. What we have seen, however, and you mentioned this in Mariupol, is the Russians move kind of ponderously away from their initial strategy, which was just to capture the government try to just take the country kind of as it is in its political system and just, you know, 
install a new leader and just choose pro-Russian and just say, this is Ukraine with Russian leadership. Um, you know, we've seen that that strategy is not going to work out. And I mean, this has been talked about all over the place. And so instead, what it seems like the Russians are doing is moving to a strategy where instead of trying to preserve the country and kind of, you know, swallow it up, they're going to just destroy everything in their path. And, you know, people who oppose them are going to be imprisoned or dead and they're not going to be a problem anymore because they're dead. Um, you know, they're going to be, a, we saw the assault on the hospital in Mariupol, the maternity ward, um, you know, slash children's hospital. Uh, it's a repeat of attack that we've seen, we saw in Syria, where they would bomb hospitals because it's a great way to break the morale of a civilian population and also make that place unlivable. Uh, so I think that's another trend that we're kind of slowly seeing develop. I mean, this might be a stupid question, but what is there to gain from like reducing Ukraine to a pile of rubble? What does Putin get? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And that's why, I mean, for this, so many people were just, we could not believe that he would do this. Because if you understood that the Ukrainians were going to fight back, then the only way that the Russians would win, could win, would be to turn it into a pile of rubble, as you said. Um, you know, I think we're, so here's an interesting moment that we're at, I think. Um, we've seen, you know, these kinds of really heavy assaults, indiscriminate bombings, filling areas in a few towns outside of Kiev, and you've seen them in two big cities. Mariupol, the one that's right now currently like, completely surrounded, that uh, where the, the children's hospital is bombed, and we've seen it in Kharkiv. Um, we, the areas that we haven't seen it, however, are downtown Kiev, and we haven't seen it in Odessa, another city that we know the Russians want in the south. And I think that that's really interesting to me for two reasons, and a different reason for each city. Basically, if you're Putin and, you know, one of the reasons you've launched this war is to kind of reclaim Russia's medieval and then Tsarist patrimony, you really care a lot about those two cities and what's in them. Because Kiev has a lot of these ancient monasteries where kind of some of the founders of ancient Russia are buried. Um, they have these ancient churches, just a lot of monuments and buildings in Kiev that kind of go back to the sort of medieval Russian patrimony that Vladimir Putin has said he's trying to reconstruct and reclaim. Um, Odessa doesn't have that. It's a more recent city, but it's a city that was built under uh, Catherine the Great. Uh, Putin mentioned Catherine the Great on International Women's Day in his address to Russian women. But it, <laughs> but it is, uh, you know, less like facetiously, it is a, uh, um, how do I put it? Odessa, it's very beautiful and it's very clearly built, like it was very clearly built during like, the Tsar's period. And it's a reflection of the kind of the you know, successes that that government had and the extent of Russian reach, you know, from St. Petersburg back then, you know, down to the Black Sea and from there to the Mediterranean. So, you know, both these cities are kind of living monuments. And I think it's interesting that we haven't seen whether we haven't seen the Russians use these kind of indiscriminate tactics against those locations. Um, right now, they're also full of really determined resistance. Ukrainians are building barricades across the streets in all those cities. They're ready to, you know, destroy the cities rather than, it seems, rather than see them go to Russian control. So I think there's an interesting question whether or not, you know, we're going to see the Russians use apply these tactics to places that in some ways have value for them and the kind of project they're undertaking, um, or if they're going to try and still find some way to gain control without having to destroy those locations. So are the places where they are kind of engaging in the totally zero-sum brutalist tactics, are those just valuable for their location and, and not what they contain? Yeah, I mean, it's, they have, I mean, valuable things like Kharkiv has this like big tractor factory, Mariupol has these mm -hmm. two huge like steel mills. So, I mean, there's like kind of like more mundane, I guess, like economic value there, there's people, um, but it's not, there isn't this like kind of like deep historical value. You know, Kharkiv is interesting, I think, because it's bandied about as this like Russian language city, which it is, 
but it's in many ways also the birthplace of Ukrainian nationalism, um, which is really what Putin is trying to crush here. Um, so I, I think when you see the images of that city just being flattened, and it's I mean it's it's absolutely tragic. Like I've been there. It's I mean it was a beautiful place before this, and it's I mean not a lot of it seems like is going to be left. Um, but right. it uh, the point I'm trying to make is that there are reasons why it wouldn't be as bad for them to flatten Kharkiv. Um, Mariupol mm. similarly is sort of like a beach resort town for all the steel mill workers in the region. It's a famous like kind of a coal mining steel mill region um, that they're fighting in there for, right, right now. And so, I mean, it, it's not a place that necessarily has like ancient architecture or like monasteries that mean a lot to your conception of like medieval Russia. It's uh, it's a place right. with a lot of people and you know, it, 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 it's, it's an area you want, you want to occupy, not necessarily one that you're going to care what it looks like afterwards. Mm, okay. Do we have any sense of the casualty numbers on either side? Yeah. So that's hard. I mean, we don't, and it's, but we don't because it's, it's so early and I mean, there's still fog of war and I don't think we're going to have accurate numbers on either side for years. I mean, I think it's going to take a really okay. long time. There are some interesting things that have come out. Um, you know, I did a story earlier this week about, um, Russian deaths, uh, basically Russian war dead. And that is trickling through both via announcements from regional Russian politicians, you know, the mayor of your local town in Siberia or the governor yeah. of your region saying, you know, we lost five young men in Ukraine. Um, what's interesting is they're not allowed to say it's a war. They'll get you sent to jail in Russia now. If you say that, they can like call it a special operation. <laughs> um, so that's pretty grim. But it also forces them to kind of, you know, discuss these deaths and frame them in a way that is like reflexively pro-Kremlin narrative, right? Um, right. So we've seen some things, you know, we've seen that coming out. Uh, I mean, I was able to count probably a little bit over 100 um, death announcements in Russian press and in like Russia on social media in Russia. And that's just me like kind of looking for a couple of days. I mean, there are probably yeah. more out there publicly and even what's out there publicly is going to be a small fraction of the total. Um, on the Ukrainian side, another interesting feature of this war has been that Ukrainians have been very, very good. And I think this is a sign of their unity in, I guess we'd call like operational secrecy. Like you just haven't really seen like these images of like Ukrainian troop movements as much or, you know, mm. public discussion of Ukrainian dead. I mean, there was one report I saw about like a mass shooting that happened, might, might may or may not have happened at like a recruitment center for a territorial defense battalion. And that was, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that was like plugged really. I mean, it was like uh, they, they, they shut down reports of that very quickly. And I think that's a reflection of like people being all in on the war effort because it is a war for defense, you know, but it's also, uh, it just means that we just don't know the answer to that question. You know, one thing that's surprised me about all this yeah. though, is the speed and the extent to which in like American society, this, uh, just gains so much resonance. I mean, even people I know who like don't follow politics that closely, uh, are like very much aware of what's going on and like see this as like a mm-hmm. clear, like battle between good and evil. But I'm curious, like, what your impression is, like, why that is or how far it's kind of penetrated into, like, people's minds. Yeah, it's funny because I've had the same impression, especially from people who, especially on, like, domestic politics and kind of other realms are very much of the camp of the Trump years were exhausting. Everything is still negative. You know, I'm I'm not really interested in looking closely at this point. But then there was this huge pivot around uh, the Russian attack, you know, to the point that I was at a concert a couple weeks ago and they projected the Ukrainian flag and, you know, everyone was chanting fuck Putin. And like, you know, there have been a lot of kind of solidarity protests and stuff, but it really is something that has seemed to grip the national imagination, which is even more 
stunning to me based on Americans' usually very small appetite for kind of foreign news in general, that this has managed to kind of stay atop the headlines, even pushing out COVID for like probably the first time since it really emerged. It's really shocking. And like, I mean, and it's inspiring in a way. Like I was looking yesterday online and because um, I was thinking about doing this story about like Ukrainian police. There's this interesting thing where in 2014, a lot of Ukrainian cops like kind of wavered whether or not they were going to take orders from Kiev or Moscow. But in 2020, but 2022, mm. we're seeing like all the Ukrainian police, um, you know, side with Kiev. I mean, they're fighting like against the Russian army. It's crazy. But, um, wow. one, but, but, but so in researching that, though, I found that like all of these different um, like random like police departments, like there was one in like Yakima, Washington, one in like, like from all over the country <laughs> who are, are like donating their excess equipment to the Ukrainians. Right. And like it, wow. it's, it's wild how like cross partisan it is because it's not just like, you know, liberals who remember the first impeachment and are like, you know, have a sort of soft spot for Ukraine because of that. It's like in that case, there was like this guy with like a big blue Lives Matter like logo, and next to it was like, a, <laughs> and, and next to it there was like a Ukrainian flag, and they're donating like you know assault rifles and bulletproof vests to the Ukrainians. Wow. But it is like it, it's interesting yeah. to me that it doesn't seem to have a specific partisan like bent yet. I'm sure it will at some point, but yeah, right. Well, and I think the other interesting thing about that is like kind of in the days before the global sentiment so shifted to be on Ukraine side largely, you know, you had Putin and like, you know, or you had um, Tucker Carlson out there kind of doing his usual Putin admiration bit. And you had Laura Ingram calling Zelensky pathetic and all that. But it really is interesting how those people who kind of gravitated towards the Putin side, whether because of Trump, whether because they like authoritarianism, just really had to like muzzle themselves pretty quickly once the tide turned (laughs) yeah they really did and i mean it's also funny because there is this like thing in the on the right of like wanting everybody to be like in a militia sort of like you know like all these politicians Mm -hmm. like in america like constantly cosplaying that like they're like the last guy with a rifle and they're just gonna stand up to this like you know leviathan of a government right and then all of a sudden like you have right (laughs) actually find themselves (laughs) in that position and what makes even funnier is like as you point out like i mean it's not funny for the ukrainians but like it is sort of funny that like it is zelensky like this guy who they all had to kind of like be suspicious of after the you know the first Trump impeachment who's now like living out this fantasy yeah exactly exactly so there are a couple um kind of diplomatic efforts going on that I wanted to get your take on. One of which was, you know, top diplomats from Russia and Ukraine met in Turkey Thursday and basically seems like those talks went basically nowhere. Was there any expectation that they would go anywhere? I mean, I, you know, there was, I think, to the extent that people are really hopeful of the bloodshed and destruction will end. There was what was described as softening in the positions of at least the Ukrainians. Like Zelensky gave this interview to ABC where he was like, he basically, I think his exact words were, I've cooled down on NATO. Like he's just, you know, and uh, so, yeah, so he, he said, you know, you know, Ukraine, maybe he suggested that maybe Ukraine is ready to renounce its NATO aspirations. And one interesting thing, I think, about the outcome of the war and his personal bravery is that it gives him the political space to do that, that maybe he didn't have before the invasion, because uh, nobody in Ukraine can now suggest that he's like really selling out the country. I mean, maybe they could, but like it, it's a lot harder to do, at least now, given how much he's like committed himself to defending the country, right. and, you know, putting his, himself at risk. On the Russian side, it's way less clear. The problem is, is that, you know, as people like to point out, like there's only one guy who decides in Russia. So we saw people like around Putin before um, the talks yesterday. In Turkey, suggesting that Russia's position is softening. We saw the Kremlin spokesperson. Um, I think he stopped using the word denazification of Ukraine 
I think the, um, mm. you know, Maria Zaharova, the spokeswoman for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, she said that, you know, Russia actually never wanted to overthrow the Ukrainian government. So, you know, there was some like kind of softening on their side, but we never saw it from Putin. And once Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, was in Turkey and speaking with uh, Dmitry Kolobov, the Ukrainian foreign minister, um, you know, there really wasn't, it, it really didn't seem like anything had changed. And what he actually said was he denied that Russia had attacked Ukraine. He said that Russia was acting in self-defense and that Russia would never attack anybody. Okay. How much, and yeah, which, which given that at this point, how much they lie, you can almost read that as like a threat. <laughs> so, uh, right. I guess, yeah, <laughs> so, but to answer your question, like there were definitely hopes. I think there were, at least in my case, they were probably coming less from like my brain and more from my heart. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, but um, it doesn't seem like they've left anything uh, concrete. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You mentioned kind of Zelensky stepping up into this, you know, kind of globally admired role. Can you give us an idea of what Ukrainians thought of him pre the Russian attack? Yeah. So he was doing horribly in the polls. I mean, I think, <laughs> and he, and he, yeah, he, he wasn't very well liked. Uh, he went in in 2019 with a lot of hope. Um, you know, he won in the biggest victory. He basically won like the biggest landslide that any Ukrainian politician ever won um, for the presidency. Wow. And that was partly on the campaign of ending the war with Russia. Um, they spent a lot of time trying to do that. Um, and they found that the Russians were intransigent and it didn't work out. Um, there are mistakes you can argue they made on the Ukrainian side as well. Um, but you get to the situation where, you know, by 2021, Zelensky is like kind of in this position where he has nowhere to go, but be like a sort of like, uh, I don't want, I don't want to say basically to be like an uber patriotic Ukrainian who isn't going to give up, who isn't going to make any, uh, concessions. Um, mm. and you know, that's not something that's necessarily popular there because before this people were really exhausted, at least especially in the East of the country, the South of the country, which is a lot of the country, they were tired of the war, mm -hmm. you know, they were tired of, as they say, sending their children into a meat grinder, you know, for what, I mean, it was a exhausting slog. And so, you know, Zelensky was kind of presiding over this. Meanwhile, uh, living standards were going up, corruption was still a problem. There was a lot of negative. Um, but now mm. what you've seen is him completely turn that around. You know, he's in across Ukrainian history, corruption has been a huge problem. And there have always been these issues, examples of that, where presidents of the country have basically put their own personal interests and like personal financial interests ahead of those of the Ukrainian state. The most famous one is that during one of the big battles in 2014, um, it came out that on the same day of the battle, it was a huge Ukrainian defeat. I think around a thousand Ukrainian soldiers died and it was during the Russian incursion. Um, the president at that time, Poroshenko, like re-registered an offshore company that he had like in the Maldives <laughs> and that oh happened the same day as this. Yeah. So like, I mean, it, right. It was that, and it was supposed to be like a blind trust. So it was that kind of thing. Right. But Zelensky broke with that history. He broke with that tradition by staying in Kiev and showing that like, you know, the Ukrainian state was something more than just like a piggy bank. I mean, he actually, you know, he's clearly willing to die for it. And so that I don't right. think you can I don't think you can overstate the extent to which that was a, had a galvanizing effect and inspirational effect on the Ukrainian people. And now, like there are so many people I know there who didn't vote for him, and are now like publicly saying, like, look, I didn't vote for Zelensky in 2019, but he's chosen a really brave path, and I can only respect him. And you know, he's it's it's interesting from an American perspective, where it's very difficult to see people who are kind of in one partisan camp crossing mm -hmm. the aisle, like in any circumstance like that. And right. like in Ukraine, often, like, the polarization is as, I mean, intense, you know, but in this case, and he actually did manage to do something that kind of broke that wall down. Right. You know, something I've been wondering if 
his history of, you know, being a comedian and being kind of a performer has helped him in this moment because I think there, yeah. not that it's not genuine, but there really is a, a layer of like kind of dramatic deafness to, to what he's doing to his, like, you know, the videos tied in on his face, wearing a t-shirt, looking like pale and tired, being like, I'm still here kind of thing. Like that's very effective, you know? Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, he's a performer and specifically like the kind of performance that he came up in was improv comedy and like improv acting. Mm. Um, <laughs> oh it's <laughs> like kind of perfect for, uh, you know, the situation, right? Um, yeah. He's, he, yeah. I mean, cause he, he, he reads the room really well. He's able to like inject like levity when he needs to. Um, so I, I, I totally agree with you. And it's, you know, there's, I mean, these are like liberal Russians, but there are like Russian people I know who are saying like, you know, it's too bad we don't have a president who's a human. Because uh, you think even if you wow. don't speak the language, you watch Zelensky and you can tell he is just like a guy, right? Like it, it, he's, yeah. I think, yeah, I think you, you got to this when you said that it's like, even just the way he's like gesturing, like his facial expressions, it's all very like intimate, I think, and immediately understandable. Mm-hmm. Whereas Putin like sitting 20 feet away at a table <laughs> from his, you know, there's people. But also I think if you want to get, like really get into like, you know, body language stuff, I mean, he's, his face is like pumped full of Botox. I mean, he's, he, he just doesn't look like you know, somebody that we're rec- that we'd recognize, I think, on the street. And that I think, yeah. some, you know, there's some people who say that like that's intentional. That like the sort of vision of power in the Russian state is supposed to be this mm-hmm. like kind of inaccessible like thing that you can never really like fully comprehend and is always going to be like above you. You know, that that's like one source of their power. I don't know if that's true or not. Might be bullshit. Um, but mm. um, <laughs> it, 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 it's it's clearly a big contrast between Zelensky and I think yeah, you could say that it. Uh, also speaks to the bigger theme of this episode, which is, you know, autocracy on one side and democracy on the other. Right. Do you, is, is there any indication that part of the obstacles Russia has been hitting, that part of that was underestimating Zelensky's global appeal? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, they, it seems like they, everybody, I mean, honestly, the U.S. included, thought that Zelensky yeah. would run away, right? He didn't. I mean, mm-hmm. so I think that's definitely true. I don't think anybody thought that Zelensky was going to be able to become this, like, yeah, global, like, superhero star in the way that he has. Yeah. You know, I think that if you look at this more broadly in terms of how do you assess, like, how dramatic the Russian defeat is, you know, it's, I think it's really difficult to know. And I think it really depends on what you think their initial aim was. If you think, if you mm-hmm. think their initial objective was to topple the Ukrainian government in two days and that was it, as you know, some top American officials have said their aim was. Then yes, this has been a defeat. There are others though who argue that like the Russian camp, the Russians weren't maybe that naive, and that they had planned, in fact, for like a six-week, two-month-long war to take down the Ukrainian government, which is more where we're headed, I think. Um, and that mm-hmm. yeah, maybe they're facing more resistance than expected. Yeah, there are supply issues. You know, people aren't motivated, but you know, across Russian history, they have not cared that much about how many of their soldiers die. It's and they haven't been particularly competent on like little detailed questions like logistics. It's just these like big kind of like you know mass movements of people in like one direction that eventually went out. And I think that if you look at it in that context, it's like, it's less clear to me you know who expected what when. I, I think there's a way of reading the current right. situation that unfortunately is you know I'm not happy saying this. It's like still kind of in line with their plans. Mm, okay, so another kind of big thing on the diplomatic front is that we have the leaders of EU countries meeting in Versailles today. Um, And, you know, that has kind of special importance given that Zelensky has been 
fairly candid about his desire for Ukraine to join the bloc. So do we have any sense of kind of where member countries are on that topic? From what I've seen, like the Western European countries are way less enthusiastic than the Eastern European countries are. And so it's the further away you are from Russia and the further mm, away you are okay. physically from Ukraine, the less interested you are in accepting the Ukrainians. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> which is sad. I, I mean, I think that it goes to an interesting yeah. question about like, why are we even here? Um, you know, Putin and the Russians have yeah. said it's all about have said it's all about NATO. But I think Zelensky is correct that it is probably more about the EU. I think if you look at the at the countries that were formerly at least in the case of the Baltic states, part of the Soviet Union or the Eastern Bloc, and you look at the transformations that those societies have undergone as they prepared to join the EU and then joined it, it's like way more dramatic than uh, joining a military alliance. And that mm. seems to really be what worries Putin is a Ukrainian society. I mean, he calls it like, I mean, one of his things was when he declared war on Ukraine, he said like, we're going to prevent it from turning into an anti-Russia. And it seems to me that mm. like, it, it seems like if, if that's really what worries him, then the EU would be a much quicker path to turning Ukraine into like an anti-Russia in his view. Um, and right. yeah, you know, it, it's interesting that Zelensky raised this question, like in the middle of like the war with the bombs falling. <laughs> I mean, it really is like, it, I mean, I think as you said, like, I mean, he's a reformer, but like it really allowed him to get to the core of the issue in this like dramatic way that like, I think made nobody comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the domestic response from President Biden in the White House. We had this week, Biden said that the U.S. will ban imports of Russian oil and liquefied natural gas. And he seemed to hint possibly that the U.S. will share, you know, the quote unquote burden of Ukrainian refugees. Like, what did you kind of make of of those remarks? I think it was great to see them go after oil and natural gas. You know, I think one thing we've been covering at TPM is the extent to which the Republicans are going to like then use the resulting high gas and energy prices to like blame Biden for screwing up the economy somehow for implementing a policy to support, yep. right? I mean, the, 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 <laughs> I mean the, the, that's the hypocrisy. You know, it, it, I mean, it, it's great to see like it is a, uh, I mean, I, I think it's a decision that's based on principle, which is nice. Um, but the big question to me is going to be, do the Europeans do that as well? And rather, like, mm-hmm. I guess not, are, are they going to ban like Russian oil and gas right now? But are they going to like spend the next five years making deep investments in infrastructure that's going to allow themselves to like not have to buy any Russian oil or gas? I mean, that's like the big question, right? Because right. that will really cut, I mean, that will, it'll be a complete, you can't overstate how extreme a shift that would be. Um, and I think it would like, it's in a big way, be a defeat for Putin because I mean, the reason he's going to be able to get away with all this stuff in Europe is because the, Ukraine, the Europeans have their hands tied because they don't want their citizens to freeze in the winter so you need to buy Russian gas, right? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, if they find a way to either import American liquefied natural gas or, you know, just maybe some kind of, I don't know, green energy alternative. Green! Yeah. <laughs> it would, uh, I mean, it would, it, would, it would definitely shut off that line of argument. Yeah, I mean, the green thing, to me, it's like, is something that I've been a little confused on from the democratic response of things. Because even given that, you know, United States is not dependent on Russian oil, you know, the way that Europe is, it just seems to me like such a natural kind of segue to be like, reliance on, you know, foreign anywhere for gas is bad and potentially a national security threat. So maybe instead we should pivot towards like not desecrating the planet and developing our, you know, green energy and all that. And then, but I think there hasn't been a super cohesive 
talking point on that from U.S. Democrats. And so then it just leaves space to have like Joe Manchin being like, you know what, we just need to produce more of our own gas and oil. And it's no. like, yeah, let's just burn it all yeah. down faster. That's a good solution. <laughs> yeah. I know it's, it's, it's really not great. And I mean, in that sense, it is an opportunity though, right? Like, I mean, as you said, like it could be that like, this is, you know, the moment where like Europe and the U S just completely stop like investing in oil or natural gas infrastructure instead of trying to find, we really trying to find like you know, green energy alternatives, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm cynical, but, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, can you give up to wrap up our Ukraine corner? Can you kind of give our listeners an idea of what is going on with the Polish fighter jets? Because I can't follow what's happening in this story. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it seems that even the people involved can't follow what's happening in the story. Um, <laughs> as, best as, <laughs> as, as best as I can tell, um, you know, last, I guess it's not last weekend, but the first weekend after the war began, um, you know, there was this moment when two days in, it was clear that the Ukrainians are going to stand firm. Zelensky was the hero of the day. And everybody in like Europe, both like from West to East, were like trying to find ways to like help because all of a sudden it was clear that there was something mm-hmm. to fight for. Um, and that the Ukrainian state wasn't just gonna like roll over after you like flicked it like a house of cards, right? Um, so, <laughs> which is what people expected. But so uh, I think amid, amid that rush, you know, there came this report out of Warsaw. As I recall, it came. I mean, I, I can be wrong, but I recall this coming from the Polish government that they were ready to supply you know old Soviet fighter jets, MiG 29s they had from their time in the Eastern Bloc. Uh, to the Ukrainians, um, if they were, I think, like replaced then with like American uh, equivalents, like the F-16. Um, and so that like kind of crashed into what seems like the Biden administration's rightful um, unwillingness to do anything that would escalate this conflict. Um, and I think, I mean, in my view, and Josh Marshall's written on this, and I think that's probably correct to be cautious in that regard. Um, but the problem is, is that it was very difficult, I think. Uh, to be seen as somebody who was not giving Ukraine support. Um, and so mm. it kind of got dragged out in these weird negotiations between Poland, the U.S., and Ukraine, where, you know, the Ukrainians sent pilots to Warsaw or to Poland, ready to fly the jets mm. into, into Ukraine. Um, it didn't come. And eventually, I think uh, on this this week, on Tuesday, the Poles just kind of, apparently without consulting anybody else, just like announced, okay, we're ready to give these to the United States. Uh, and they said specifically to Ramstein, Ramstein the Air Force Base in Germany. From and they didn't say this, but from there, I guess the Ukrainians would fly the jets to Ukraine. And, I, and it seems like the thinking was that the Russians would be way less likely to retaliate if, one, the planes are being flown from somewhere in like Central Europe and not Eastern Europe, like Poland. Mm. And if it was like an American Air Force Base, not a Polish Air Force Base, like both are NATO, but it's different if it's, if it's American, I guess, is the way they think about it. Um, but right. the U.S. declined that offer. And they, I think, cited specifically as, uh, escalation concerns in their response. Mm. Um, and so that's not going to happen. But I think, and, you know, I think I would just add that, like, Ukrainians, you have to understand this. I mean, they've been calling for this no-fly zone. They've been calling for air support this entire time. And, you know, again, Josh Marshall has written about this, like, extensively. But I really think that should be understood as a call for the U.S. to become directly involved in the war, because in some level, they understand that their best chance of survival is if they have, if, is if they can call America in as a war ally, right? Um, because the only way that we can impose a no-fly zone would be to destroy Russian surface-air missile batteries that are located in Belarus and in Russia, um, and basically to kill Russian troops, right? And so who knows how that would spiral mm-hmm. and, where, and where that would end. Nobody knows. It would be an incredibly dangerous situation. Um, right. And I, I, I kind of think you have to see the Ukrainian like desire for these jets as maybe part of the same uh, push. Um, it's not clear to me that they would have any, they would have any mm. like battlefield utility, given that the Russian surface-to-air missile coverage, anti-air coverage, 
basically has already given them a veto on the Ukrainian Air Force for the past week or so. It's not clear what giving the Ukrainians more MiGs would do. You know, the only extent to which their airspace right. is contested is because the Ukrainians themselves have still have operational like anti-air defenses that we gave. And then also they just have left over from the Soviet Union. They also developed themselves. So it's it, it just doesn't seem like, again, the whole thing just kind of felt to me like a stand-in for this debate about like whether or not NATO was going to do, do a no-fly zone and then therefore escalate. Ah, well, that makes much more sense to me than my very <laughs> jumbled impression of what this story was. <laughs> um, okay, so we are now going to bounce over to Great. America, and we're going to talk about the Supreme Court. Josh and I will kind of switch roles a little bit here, doing this on the fly here at the Josh Marshall podcast. Um, so kind of to jump into it, uh, I well, wrote yeah, actually, about... Kate, could, I, was, I was just going to ask, I mean, if, if, if I'm going to be the if, if I'm going to be the Kate now. Um, Take over, <laughs> host. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> well, I was just going to ask if you, if you could explain your story about, um, just kind of give me like an overview you know, what was this dissent? Yeah. Like, what was the case about and what worried you, what worries you about it? Right. So this week we got uh, an order from the Supreme Court about a redistricting case out of North Carolina. So what had happened is the North Carolina legislature had drawn a map that, you know, heavily favored Republican candidates. The North Carolina Supreme Court said, no, that um, is a, you know, a violation of our anti partisan gerrymandering state constitution. Um, and so this, the court had special masters drop a new map, which then North Carolina Republicans challenged to the Supreme Court, asking them to knock that map down. And the legal reasoning they use is this thing called the independent state legislature theory, which okay. rests on this very, very narrow and literal interpretation of two clauses of the constitution that gives state legislatures, A, the control over the time, place, and manner of elections, and then be the, quote, manner of selecting presidential electors. So, well, I was just going to ask, I mean, the independent state legislature theory, um, I, I mean, I feel like I've heard that in different contexts with Republicans trying to have state legislatures just like decide the outcome of the election. I mean, is that the same mm -hmm. thing? Okay. Yeah, that's exactly right. It actually kind of, it reared its head in Bush v. Gore in 2000, where um, three of the justices kind of endorsed it, but not enough signed on. So it was just a, kind of a high profile invocation of it. And then it just lay dormant for like 20 years and came up again in a huge way in the 2020, um, you know, various challenges to ballots and all the Trump efforts to kind of overturn the election. There it was invoked and um, endorsed by Kavanaugh pretty clearly. So. Yeah. So getting back to the North Carolina case, we had three justices dissent from the over the majority's decision to bat back the North Carolina Republicans challenge to let the court draw on maps stand. So Gorsuch, Alito and Thomas all dissented and fully embraced the independent state legislature theory. So we have those three plus knowing that Kavanaugh's been friendly to the idea before tells us that even though on its face, the North Carolina decision was kind of a win for voting rights advocates, we now know that there are at least four justices on the court who are ready to embrace this doctrine, which would give state legislatures unfettered control over election rules, voting rules, and redistricting maps to the exclusion of state courts, state constitutions, ballot pass initiatives, everything like that. Wow. So you say four justices. Is there a potential fifth justice here that people are worried about? I mean, what, what would put, what, what would tip this over like to, to a majority? <laughs> yeah. So 
the known quantity here is John Roberts, who basically has gotten pissy in the past about federal courts interfering with state legislatures, but he doesn't seem to have a problem with state courts having a role in controlling them. So that pretty much sets all eyes on Amy Coney Barrett, who we have absolutely no idea how she feels about this. And because this order came down on the shadow docket, we think that she voted with Roberts and the liberals to turn the challenge to the map aside, but we really don't know. So literally the singular tea leaf we have is that she worked on the George W. Bush legal team during Bush v. Gore. And that tenuous connection is like our only clue either way. But that's, I mean, if you are somebody who cares about the voters, not the state legislatures being able to decide the outcome of an election, that's a pretty grim, I mean, it seems like that's a pretty grim sign not to read the tea leaves too much. Exactly. Um, Yeah. I mean, the ramifications are pretty scary if you, especially in the election subversion category, which I think Mm -hmm. is what everyone kind of jumps to when we see things like this. And, you know, and the problem with it is I talked to a bunch of legal experts and I was like, does, would something like this give state legislatures the power to do something like put in their own slate of electors if their preferred candidate doesn't win? And the tricky thing is there are other parts of the constitution that would kind of work against that. But there were a lot of kind of right-wing activists saying this on Twitter, which is, we've got the votes on the Supreme Court, so who really cares what's in the Constitution? Right, because you get to decide what the Constitution says. So, I mean, how does this also interact with, like, I mean, partisan gerrymandering cases in the future? Because, I mean, it seems like, at least in this cycle, and you've written about this, that's been a pretty effective tool by Democrats to, uh, you know, keep maps fair, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So the idea, on the one hand, that you would kind of bar state courts from interfering I mean, that's huge on its own because we've seen even just this cycle, North Carolina, um, Ohio, Pennsylvania, those state courts all ended up, Ohio still in the process, but all ended up kind of pushing back against these very, very skewed maps put in place by uh, legislatures that are so heavily Republican, thanks to the gerrymandering of years prior. So it's a really needed check to what's now become kind of a baked in Republican advantage. So you would take that off the table. And then It's a bigger problem because in 2019, the Supreme Court closed the federal judiciary to partisan gerrymandering claims altogether, saying basically it's too political of a question for the federal judiciary to handle. So your only route that you have left is racial gerrymandering cases on the federal level, most of which are brought under the Voting Rights Act, which conveniently the Supreme Court has already kicked in the shins repeatedly. You know, starting in 2015, they got rid of preclearance. And then last year, they weakened Section 2, which is the part you t- you um, litigate these claims under. So not great. Not great. <laughs> is there a risk that Section 2 might be further weakened or just be destroyed altogether? I mean, yeah. So um, there's another redistricting case out of Alabama. The only thing the justices have done so far is pause a lower court ruling that the Alabama legislature has to redraw the map because it so brutally does not represent the black voting population of Alabama. But so we don't know how the majority feels about the merits of the argument, but the merits themselves that Alabama is bringing, they're kind of doing this novel catch 22 where they're saying, What you need to do to prove a vote dilution case under the VRA is to show that you can have cohesive minority voting districts that would get to pick the candidate of their choice. So you have to draw a map showing that minority communities kind of fulfill these different um, qualifications, like that they're geographically somewhat close together, um, you know, that they would 
vote together as a block, things like that. So you have to draw that map. But Alabama is saying that the very drawing of that map is an illegal racial gerrymander under the VRA, basically trying to create this circle where it's impossible to ever prove a vote dilution claim. So we just make sure I understand that they're basically saying that if you it's almost like saying if you talk about the crime, that's the crime, right? Like, <laughs> like exactly. I mean, like the, exactly. Yeah, OK. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Well, I mean, that is very uh, yeah. I mean, that is very that is very Putin-esque. I mean, you know, you, you, <laughs> um, <laughs> yep. yikes. Got exactly. it. So, OK, so I mean, you know what? I mean, so you mentioned the Alabama case. Are there any other big cases kind of coming up that we should be aware of? I mean, kind of things on this issue that we should be paying attention to? Well, so the big thing now is it looks like there are enough votes just between the three dissenters and Kavanaugh to take up the North Carolina case on the merits later down the line. And that is when we would kind of see the battling out of the independent state theory and see if Barrett's on board. And it's funny because like we've reached such a grim point that legal experts I was talking to were like, well, at least there'll be full arguments over this and briefings. It won't just come down through the shadow docket. Like that's the big, woo. Yeah. <laughs> well, I really wonder, cause I mean, there's been so much criticism about that. And didn't we see like Alito last year, like directly respond to some of the criticism on the, on the use of the shadow docket. Yep. I just, I, I really wonder if that pressure means has like kind of forced them to you know bring things out into like full court. Yeah. It's funny because in that Alabama case, actually, you know, you had a dissent written on the merits by Kagan and then the majority didn't write, but Kavanaugh wrote a concurring opinion. And his entire thing was basically just being mad at what Kagan wrote in her dissent. And at one point, she takes a shot at the shadow docket and is like, you know, they're changing huge kind of swaths of precedent in the dark. And, you know, Kavanaugh wrote something like, these old tired claims about the shadow docket are misguided and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, okay, that's funny. <laughs> you've, you've convinced me. <laughs> yeah. So I also, I wanted to ask just to bring it back to the gerrymandering point. I mean, let's say like a state like Wisconsin, right? Where, what is it? Like, you know, it, I, I forget what the exact statistic is, but something like more than like two thirds of the uh, state, pop, like basically in order for there to be a democratic majority in the state house, You'd have to get like over like more than like like two thirds of the popular vote be for Democrats, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, it, it, to what extent? I mean, are we already kind of like living in the reality that people are afraid of? I guess is my question. Like, I mean, if we already have all these states where gerrymanders are so aggressive, they've effectively disenfranchised like huge portions of the population. I mean, has, has the worst already happened at least on the state level? Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent. The f- part of the reason that this redistricting cycle we haven't had a situation where everyone's saying, you know, Republicans are going to pick up another 16 seats in in the fall, no matter what, is because Republicans already so brutally gerrymandered everything last decade that there's not that much left to do. But the difference here, I think, is even though the checks on partisan gerrymandering and racial gerrymandering have been so weakened and diluted, they still exist and it still does have an effect. Like in Florida, you've kind of watched the state legislature fighting with itself about how egregious of a gerrymander it can get away with. And we're talking about a future where that's not a question, where they can do something as maximal as possible and know there's basically no check on it. And that's going to result in, you know, even kind of quote unquote good government states are then also going to do totally aggressive gerrymanders because just defensively, because you're going to have to. And that just, we are already kind of living it, but it's a future where it's even more true than elections are predestined before anyone casts a vote and there are no competitive districts left whatsoever. So that means it's all about the primaries, which is not ideal because 
given the bent of the Republican Party right now, that just means you've got to run to your right of whoever runs against you, which will kind of continue our tug into, you know, dangerous territory. And in general, I mean, do you see this this redistricting cycle as a, I mean, and what, I'm not talking about this specific case, but just like in general, now looking at everything being included, I mean, do you see this as a step towards a world where we have slightly more competitive competitive districts, or is this more in the direction of fewer competitive districts, you know, more fighting out the primaries? I mean, kind of which way did Mm -hmm. we head? Like, in in which, I'm I'm muddling this question. (laughs) No, I gotcha. Yeah, in in which direction did we take a step this past cycle? Decidedly less competitive. I mean, that's kind of the big takeaway. And it's, you know, that really matters because there's no, you're not going to win over any voters when you've got a Trump plus 15 seat or a Biden plus 15 seat. So you're not even going to compete for them. I mean, that's not democracy. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I mean, as you said, like there, there's this like tit for tat element to it, right? Like, I mean, if you're a Democrat mm-hmm. in New York State, at a certain point, you have to look over your shoulder and see that, you know, in Wisconsin or Florida, I mean, they're just making it impossible for anybody to win. And if you want to have federal representation, you have to, you know, you have to do something, don't you? That's, that's totally right. And a big kind of criticism, quote unquote, that's like emerged this cycle is that in some states that Democrats control, they went through with setting up, you know, an independent redistricting commission that would give provide fair maps, but some people have accused them of kind of unilaterally disarming because Republicans didn't do that. So then you're in this like difficult situation where, you know, Democrats kind of, you have to almost urge Democrats to be less Democratic to be able to fight back against Republicans, but then you're encouraging a world where elections are predestined. Even though they don't, they're the only ones proposing a law at the federal level that would ban partisan gerrymandering. Isn't that, isn't, isn't that right? Exactly. And that yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because that is kind of the one saving grace on the independent state legislature's theory that if there is federal legislation, that would be a check on state legislatures, which is obviously really important given the slate of legislation that Democrats have put forward. But, um, you know, thanks to Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema upholding the filibuster, we are not going to see those laws anytime soon. Not this term, certainly. I also really wonder if that ban somehow got, you know, made it through Congress and got signed. I, I really wonder what the Supreme Court would do with it. Totally. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a 6-3 court. As you say, they clearly are showing like a lot of hostility to... Anything like that. So, you know, what what would they do? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So we're getting towards the end of our show. And there's one more thing we wanted to talk about briefly, which was um, earlier this month, we had our first in the nation primaries in Texas. And it was also Texas's first election under SB1, which our listeners will remember as the big kind of election rework omnibus that was so objectionable. It drove Democrats to one time walk out and like huddle in a church and then the second time to fly to D.C. and just kind of hang out in the halls of Congress for a while. But so we had our first election under that. And our uh, I'm actually working on a story with our colleague, Matt Shuham, which will probably be up later today, but kind of a postmortem of what happened under this law. And honestly, the rejection numbers are crazy. Like one district I talked to, Collin County, it has a little chunk of Dallas. It, The administrator told me they usually have single digit rejections and that this year it was 14% and that it was basically all from this law, which requires you to remember whatever ID number you put on your original voter file and put that on your ballot application and the ballot itself, which is obviously hard for anyone to do, particularly hard because in Texas, the only people who 
Well, most of the people who automatically get to vote by mail are 65 plus. So you're asking people who registered to vote potentially decades ago to remember what number they put on that original voter file. So kind of an example of everything we've been talking about. Right. <laughs> I mean, it is. No, I mean, it. it it's really stunning to see all these things be put into practice, right? Because it's one thing to just sort of have this as like a partisan threat, but to actually do that, I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's very depressing. And I exactly. mean, you know, to, to bring this full circle, I mean, the Ukrainians are fighting for something, right? It's for survival, but it is also mm-hmm. for representative forms of government. Uh, and it's pretty disheartening to see that be tripped away at here. It's disheartening. And then at the same time, just the kind of rally around the Ukraine flag has given me like weird hope for our own country in a way that I haven't for a while. Just yeah, it's been a too. while since we've seen people unified behind the forces of democracy, you know? <laughs> yeah, and to feel like it actually means something. But hopefully that'll translate to something, you know, actually practicing it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um listeners, another reminder, twenty five percent off at Grady's with promo code TPM. Josh Kavinsky, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Kate. All right. Thanks everyone. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 